Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. You know, the neat part was is that had they not accessed services, we wouldn't have gotten a social worker in there who was able to get them connected immediately with a food bank to have food delivered into their home so that they didn't have to go out. But the really cool part of the story was the nurse case manager actually went home and actually made a, um, a dinner for that family, actually brought it back to them so that they'd have a hot meal. So when you think about, you know, what we do and the impact that we have, right, this wasn't a COVID patient, but somebody who had been impacted by the COVID environment, um, had they not accessed these services, God only knows, you know, what would have happened to that patient and that family. And, uh, you know, and the nurses really didn't even talk about this. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, co-host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of having co-host Zach Morgan sit down with me as we got to know a little bit better the CEO of Mission Healthcare, Paul Verhove. Now, we started to record these episodes and are putting them on YouTube, so you may notice um, we're not quite there with some of the syncing. Uh, but for the most part, this is uh, an improvement from our first episode. So we hope you enjoy uh, growing with us as we put our shows on YouTube during the pandemic. In today's episode, Paul talks about one, his favorite burrito in San Diego. He actually grew up on the East Coast and actually spent some time in Italy in his early part of life. So he really didn't know what a good burrito was like, but that's not the focus of the show. The focus of the show is how he brought his wealth of knowledge from working with powerhouses like Gentiva and Vitas Hospice and how he's able to impact Mission Healthcare, a regional strong player in home health and hospice based in California. He also talks a little bit about the COVID-19 outbreak and how his team is able to deal with the pandemic and a very touching story about one of his nurses. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And if you like today's episode, of course, you can learn more about the show at pophealthpodcast.com and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and of course now YouTube as well. Thanks everyone. Enjoy the show. So, Paul, can you tell us something about you that may surprise that might surprise the audience? Something outside of the workplace, perhaps? Yeah, you know, as growing up as a kid, um, I actually had a, a father who had lost uh, his father and his brother um, very early on in his life, and decided he wanted to be a physician, but actually didn't have the grades to to be able to go to medical school. So he uh, he decided to go to medical school in Italy which meant uh, bringing a wife and uh, two young children along with him. So we actually lived in uh, Sicily and in Rome for a number of years while he was, uh, one, learning the language, and then, two, going through uh, medical school out there. So pretty incredible experience. In fact, I was so young that when I came back, I actually had to be held back from starting kindergarten um, because I didn't know how to speak English. Uh, oh. You know, Obviously, when you're out there, you, you try to immerse yourself in the culture and learning the language and uh, you come back to the States and uh, there was just never English used in the home. And, you know, they say kids pick up languages really quickly, uh, but they also forget languages really quickly as well. Wow. So do you still speak Italian today? You know, unfortunately, when you live in Southern California and you have, you know, Spanish that gets mixed into it, um, it, it kind of gets, uh, you know, just kind of changes everything and you very quickly have nobody to speak to and uh, you very quickly forget, you know, kind of how, how to speak. So I have parents that still do, but unfortunately none of it resonated with me. Wow. So how was the, was there a culture shock when you came back as a young child or? Yeah, you know, my memories as most kids, you know, you, you wouldn't know, you know, as all of us do, right. You know, whether you're in a good situation or a bad situation, usually you don't figure that out until uh, you're much, much older and can actually relate it to something. And, you know, as a kid, 
you know, as long as there's a place to play and people to play with, um, you know, usually you have a pretty good memory of it. So, you know, all of my memories were, you know, as a very, very young boy. So uh, they were positive and, you know, I remember good people and um, even better food. So uh, it's, it's all positive from my perspective. All right. Awesome. So maybe talk a little bit about where you grew up. You mentioned Southern California, where you went to school and ultimately how you ended up in healthcare. Yeah. So I actually grew up in North Jersey, uh, just a little bit outside of uh, Manhattan. Uh, that's where I was born and for the most part where I was raised. And then uh, in junior high, um, after my father became a physician, uh, he got his first post in San Diego. So pretty easy move to move from the, uh, the hot, humid summers, the cold winters of New Jersey to, you know, Southern California, where, you know, as a, as a kid, you just thought that, you know, everyone lived on the beach and palm trees everywhere and the ocean was uh, smacking up against everyone's homes. Uh, but it was pretty easy uh, to come out here, you know, in the seventh grade and uh, just fell in love with the, the Southern California culture. Um, you know, really from a healthcare standpoint, it's all I've ever done. Um, I was a pre-med major, uh, obviously coming from a, a physician family. My mother was a nurse. Um, it was kind of, you know, you were almost guided towards it, yeah. uh, but decided to kind of pivot and really fell in love with really the administration part. Um, you know, right out of school, actually while I was going to school, um, you know, kind of got into home health and, uh, you know, I've kind of been in home health and hospice for, you know, my entire career, which has been, um, you know, just a great choice and, uh, a great business to be able to, uh, to lead and, and support individuals who do that type of work. Great. I, uh, I also have lived in San Diego. Uh, I've lived in San Diego for a while myself. Um, do you have like a favorite, uh, restaurant or spot down there that you go, uh, since you, since you still live in San Diego? Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, you know, when you when you come to San Diego, you know, they are known for, you know, for their Mexican food. And um, once you get outside of San Diego County, we, we say the, the Mexican food changes. And, uh, you know, we don't even call it Mexican food. It's called taco shops. And, uh, you know, usually the, the less fancy they are, the more uh, in a strip mall they are. Those are the ones that, you know, you just remember. And I'll still to this day never forget the first time I had, you know, what a real burrito was, um, you know, coming from the East coast, you thought Taco Bell was about as, uh, as good as it got. And then you realized what, uh, you know, Southern California Mexican food really was. And, uh, you know, obviously I haven't shied away from the plate since I got here. Uh, I mean, I, I'm with you. The, yeah, the, the more, uh, the, the sketchier looking the place, the better, the better the food. Um, uh, I know when I was working down there a lot, uh, Gavin actually used to enjoy coming down to visit because, uh, we would go on tours of, uh, California burritos, uh, yeah. <laughs> for, uh, for work. So, um, so you had mentioned, uh, although we could talk about, uh, San Diego Mexican food the whole time, we won't, uh, but, uh, you had mentioned that you have always gravitated towards healthcare, um, but that you actually ended up in post-acute, uh, and have kind of stayed there and obviously been incredibly successful in that arena. Um, I mean, you've worked for some of the largest healthcare players, um, over the years, Accent Care, VTOS, Kindred, and now you're with Mission, um, which is very strong regionally, um, but not necessarily uh, the national presence, or maybe at the time, not the national presence that the others did. Uh, what really drew you towards Mission? You know, first, I mean, having the opportunity to have worked for, you know, big national companies, um, you know, you really learn from people who have learned how to uh, support clinicians who are doing this type of work. Um, you know, processes are very good. 
uh, the ability to manage, you know, the key metrics are, you know, in place, um, you know, so that education was, you know, by far the best that I ever could have asked for, uh, you know, but I think as, you know, my career continued to evolve, um, you take on more and more responsibility and, um, you know, really what you, what at least what I fell in love with was, you know, the ability to not be too far away from the field level clinician, uh, to not be too far away from, you know, the local strategies, uh, to be able to hear the success stories of staff, to hear the success stories of patients um, was really important to me. So, you know, when I had the opportunity to join Mission, um, it was a company that was, you know, very culture focused, uh, took care of its people. I felt like it aligned, you know, very well with kind of what my style was. And, uh, you know, having been here now a little bit over a year um, was just a great decision from my perspective, uh, because you know, I was able to really join an organization that, you know, I believe, you know, focuses on the right things, which is, you know, employees and, and patients. Yeah. And um, so, and what are the current service lines that Mission offers? So Mission today offers home health and hospice uh, throughout all of our offices in Southern California. We have 11 different locations um, for both service lines. We did we did private duty um, uh, a number of years ago and just realized, um, you know, as many of you over at 24 hour home care probably recognize, um, you know, to, to do these businesses, you have to be an expert in order to be successful. And, uh, you know, from the employees that you manage to the types of patients that you get, um, it really requires um, a different mindset and trying to be all things to all people um, is really difficult uh, because what you find is, there's people who are waking up and only thinking about that one post-acute care service, you know, much like, uh, you know, 24-hour home care thinks about private duty as we think about home health and hospice. Um, so we really found that it was better for us to partner with different companies and um, allow the experts to really do that type of work, which was, you know, really different than, you know, kind of the skilled care um, that we, you know, had kind of our primary focus on. Yeah, that's uh, it's a great point. We always talk about the uh, the jack of all trade, master of none uh, um, uh, conversation, and how we we take the same approach with partnering with organizations that do what they do incredibly well and are the experts uh, at that. So I, I do remember vividly when, when we first uh, kind of were starting in San Diego uh, that Mission was the, the company that we saw everywhere. Did did Mission start in San Diego before it branched out throughout California? Was that the first uh, the first location? Yeah, it was. Um, so still headquartered here in San Diego. So this is obviously you know our flagship. Uh, we started ten years ago. Uh, it's actually an incredible story. Um, you know, the the four founders of the company uh, actually bought a Medicare license from the IRS. So it was a a defunct uh, home health license that had some patients and some employees. Uh, they hadn't paid their payroll taxes, and uh, we picked that up. And literally, that you know, that has grown into what it is today, with you know, eleven offices throughout Southern California and taking care of close to two thousand patients on a daily basis. And so what, uh, what, what really um, was the difference for Mission in San Diego from the other competitors that really helped it catch on? And then what were some of the learning lessons that you had uh, as, a, as an organization as you started to expand outside of San Diego? Because San Diego, for people that don't know, is a, is a unique healthcare market. It's one of the, I mean, some of the best uh, healthcare in the world is located there, but it's also very um, community feeling uh, and uh, very tight knit. So uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of the growth in San Diego and then growing outside of it as well. 
Yeah, I think, you know, the the growth story really was, you know, we're going to do things very differently than some of the places that, you know, folks have worked at prior. And, uh, you know, was, we're going to take care of employees first. And we're also going to try to, you know, do the things that a lot of other competitors, you know, wouldn't do, whether it was, you know, take higher acuity patients, uh, take different insurances, uh, go out to, you know, remote areas that other providers wouldn't go to. And, you know, that's really how it started. You know, we, we started by, you know, kind of cutting our teeth on taking the toughest patients and going to cities that even if you lived here, uh, you didn't know existed in, in the county boundaries. And uh, that obviously creates a lot of challenges, but, uh, you know, your community partners start to recognize that you're trying to help. And, uh, you know, little by little, they, um, you know, want to work with you more. And, And that's really been the recipe for success, you know, since inception. And I think as we expanded into other markets, um, you know, we kind of followed suit with that same mentality that if, you know, we kind of grow from the inside out, um, you know, we'll have some pain points in the beginning. Um, but, you know, ultimately, it'll be, you know, the success of the organization. Um, I couldn't agree more with you, Zach. Uh, you know, San Diego's pretty isolated, right? You've got, you know, Mexico to the south of it. Um, you know, you've got a lot of empty land to the east of it um, before you hit, you know, Yuma. And then, you know, there's quite a bit of space before you get into really Riverside and Orange County. So, you know, the healthcare community isn't as, um, uh, there's not a lot of commuters, you know, people stay in, um, in the county, um, they work in the county, uh, there's not folks kind of coming in from different counties. So it, it can have, you know, some really positives and some really negatives from that. Um, you know, one, you're either an insider, uh, or you're an outsider. And, I think uh, probably right. 24 hour probably experienced that too, coming from oh, yeah. Los Angeles. It takes some time to, you know, to, to really get people to trust um, and believe that, you know, you're, you're there and that you're, you know, going to, you know, really adhere to kind of their standards and, you know, they'll challenge you with tough cases or, you know, unique scenarios. And, um, you know, if you, if you can accomplish that, usually, you know, the community will let you in. So we had a lot of success with that in San Diego, which we think, you know, kind of toughened the, uh, our skin because, you know, you, you obviously have a lot of failures in that process of, of growing. Um, and then as you get into different communities, I think, you know, for us, you know, being such a culture focused company, um, one of the biggest challenges was, you know, making sure that that culture, you know, was really felt and believed um, in every location, even though it may not be people coming in under the same roof, you know, for different meetings or, you know, company events. And, um, you know, I think we've done a good job of, making sure that, you know, in a technology age, we stay, you know, just as present with our locations that are far away from us. You know, we obviously go out to, you know, to Palm Springs, which, you know, is a three-hour commute um, and as far up north as uh, Ventura and Santa Barbara, which, you know, with LA traffic can be, you know, a five-hour, sometimes a six-hour, sometimes a 10-hour drive uh, from San Diego and you can't fly there. So, you know, the ongoing joke that I've always shared is, is that I can actually fly to Atlanta, Georgia faster than I can drive to Ventura, California. And, you know, it kind of, though you may be a regional provider, um, it, it kind of shows you, you know, you, how you still have to function almost like a national provider would. Right, right. Uh, although uh, that was a great transition because I do want to ask you a little bit about the whole COVID-19 challenge and, and you touched a little bit on having to build a culture that works even if you're not in the same room uh, and, and, uh, so that's a great kind of lead into, I'll start just kind of with a generic question. Um, how has, the, what were the main impacts 
just at kind of a high level of the COVID-19 crisis on your delivery of care? It's, it's a great question. We could probably spend a couple of hours probably just talking about that question. So I'll try to stay pretty high level. You know, here in California, um, you know, we were obviously one of the states that got hit uh, pretty quick, um, faster than the rest of the country. You know, obviously you had the state of Washington and then Northern California and then very quickly Southern California, I think even before really New York City started to see it. So, you know, we feel like we were, you know, probably ahead of a lot of other providers in other parts of the country because of just the, the sheer timing. Um, you know, so as, as we were learning, everybody was learning. So there, there wasn't really a playbook. There wasn't another company that you kind of mimic, you know, what they did to have successes. I think, you know, the first thing that we recognized was, you know, we really needed to find our, our way through getting the right, you know, protective equipment for our employees. Um, because we knew that if we didn't have that, it would be very, very difficult to, um, to be able to care for the patients that were ultimately going to come to us. So, you know, we, we really spent, you know, an inordinate amount of time. I'll tell you, you know, my job, um, you know, looked very, very different pre-COVID than it did during COVID and, and even now. Uh, but I think there for about 45 days, you know, um, I became a procurement manager of, uh, of supplies. So that kind of explains to you, you know, how important that was. So, you know, we were very fortunate in being able to, you know, get some things through non-traditional vendors. And I think being a smaller provider, um, you know, allowed us to be able to do that where we were getting, you know, masks from painting companies. We were getting, you know, gowns from people who do car resurfacing. Um, we, we really found, you know, different equipment through different vendors, you know, before kind of the, the world locked up, which um, was happening kind of almost minute by minute. Um, in fact, there'd be times where, you know, you'd have things in your, in your inbox. And by the time you went to go check out, uh, you know, the supplies were gone. That's, that's literally how, how fast, you know, stuff was moving off the shelves. So, you know, for, for us to be able to do that, I think was, you know, just really changed what, what our focus was. You know, the second piece was really trying to get an understanding of how to educate our clinicians and how to educate our patients. Um, you know, obviously, when you have a virus like this, you know, we had China to be able to kind of use as an understanding of kind of what, what they experienced there and what the virus was doing. Um, but so many unknowns really created just a massive amount of anxiety um, in our field level clinicians as well as in our, in our offices. So, you know, we, we spent a lot of time really trying to understand what we needed to do as a company. Um, I think, uh, you know, internally what we did is, you know, we try to identify what individuals were, you know, kind of non-essential to the day-to-day -day business and, um, you know, made them remote employees. Um, it also gave us the ability to really space out kind of the essential to the day-to-day, -day, you know, folks who needed to be in an office setting. Um, so we felt like we did the right things there. Um, we were probably ahead of almost every county, state, and federal mandate by at least a week or two. Um, so I think we did a good job of being proactive. Um, you know, we had masks on employees long before it ever became a requirement. Um, we actually then, uh, with our clinicians, you know, created COVID teams. Um, and in each market for each business line, um, what we found was having an isolated group who was going to care for these patients um, and or care for patients who were in facilities, nursing homes, assisted livings, board and cares that had COVID present, that that would be the best way for us to be able to really make sure that we were one, uh, ensuring they had all of the right equipment, um, two, that they had the right education, 
And then the third part was, is that we needed to make sure we kept a team um, isolated from COVID because as we're seeing, you know, non-COVID impacted patients and going into non-COVID impacted facilities, uh, we didn't want to be a carrier per se. And, um, and that's how we kind of dealt with it. Um, today, we're continuing to keep COVID patients um, on our service. We've admitted um, an extraordinary number of these patients, um, which obviously are very, very tough to manage for both home health and hospice. Um, you know, on hospice, um, these, these patients are very, very sick, and obviously the respiratory distress, um, you know, makes these challenging cases to manage because you're managing active symptoms. Um, when you're dealing with home health patients, you're dealing with patients who've been, in many cases, in the hospital for really long periods of time. You know, we, we've seen some three and four week patients who've been lying in a hospital bed. So when you think about the rehabilitation of not only the lungs, but um, the body, right, the, the physical aspect, the, the therapy components, um, patients were coming out extremely weak. Um, but I think, you know, we did a good job. Um, we've had some great success stories. And um, the team has really responded to, I think, think, having the equipment that they needed and um, us being able to really be a resource for our community partners to take these patients. And some of the stories um, are just honestly heart-wrenching um, as to what you hear staff is doing. Uh, I'll just give you a quick story that I think, you know, you guys would be interested in. Um, we had a, a little family that we admitted down in um, uh, southern San Diego, uh, Hispanic family is an older couple, didn't have any family, didn't have any friends. Uh, the patient actually came on to hospice. It was the wife that came on to service. And when we were actually doing the admission, um, you know, what we found was that there was no food in the home. And, uh, you know, the, the husband was afraid of going out because, you know, English, not, a, not his first language. Um, obviously, the fear factor, um, you know, he's afraid of bringing his wife home who was coming out of the hospital and she didn't have COVID, um, but it, it obviously impacted them and how they were living their life. Um, you know, the neat part was, is that had they not accessed services, you know, we wouldn't have gotten a social worker in there who was able to get them connected immediately with a food bank to have food delivered into their home so that they didn't have to go out. Um, but the really cool part of the story was the nurse case manager actually went home and actually made a, um, a dinner for that family actually brought it back to them so that they'd have a hot meal. So when you think about, you know, what we do and the impact that we have, right, this wasn't a COVID patient, but somebody who had been impacted by the COVID environment, um, had they not accessed these services, God only knows, you know, what would have happened to that patient and that family. And, uh, you know, and the nurses really didn't even talk about this. It was something that was kind of just kept amongst themselves. Nobody was doing it for, you know, for fame or glory. They did it because it was the right thing. So when you see clinicians doing things like that, um, you know, when you're sitting in the office trying to procure equipment and working through all of the, you know, the financial challenges that COVID has had on, on healthcare companies, um, those are the things that kind of kept you up and kept you working, making sure that you were supporting that group doing that kind of work. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is incredible. And thank you for sharing. We, you were, you're right. We do love hearing, uh, we do love hearing those stories and it really is incredible. Um, I, I'm going to pass it over to Gavin to talk about things non-COVID related in just a minute, but I just wanted to follow up with, with just some last questions. Um, I mean, we're also dealing with going into the home as well. And one of the things that we uh, found a lot to be a, a huge challenge that we maybe hadn't uh, expected as much at first was uh, the fear factor and getting people to accept having help in their home. 
uh, during a time of so much fear. We, we talk constantly that, that fear is kind of everyone's biggest competitor now. Uh, and so I just wanted, I want, I wonder if you guys kind of experience the same thing and are you guys using any, um, like remote, like telehealth style services or, um, trying to reach people in that way also. Um, and then the last part I'll just ask, and then I'll just let you kind of go, uh, you had mentioned some of the financial impact. I'm curious, uh, have there been, uh, reimbursement, uh, challenges or changes or, um, things that they've done to try to help providers, uh, during this time? Yeah, so I'll take the first question. Um, you know, I think that the fear factor is real. And, uh, you know, when you think about nursing homes, assisted livings, uh, board and cares, obviously having a lot of seniors all in one um, tight space, you know, they, they obviously became very concerned, uh, especially as many of them had, you know, active cases. Uh, the spread was, you know, was significant for many of those facilities. And um, so that fear factor really kind of just permeated through, I think, the industry where if you didn't have COVID in your building, you tried to lock your building down and make sure that nobody came in. Um, and if you did have it, you were still trying to make sure that, you know, it didn't get, you know, spread uh, within the four walls of your, of your facility. So we absolutely saw that as a, a massive issue in, in delivering care for both home health and hospice. And then on the home visits, um, we saw patients who were canceling visits. So I think initially um, what we saw was, a lot of folks who were wanting just the critical need visits, you know, so if there was an infusion being done or if there was wound care or if there was, you know, medication, um, key medication administration that needed to be uh, done, it was those kind of visits that, you know, were being kind of allowed in the facilities and that patients were still okay with. But when it came to some of the ancillary services, people were trying to find, you know, alternate ways to not have those folks come into their home. So, you know, like a home health aide is obviously very, very important in both home health and hospice. And, you know, many of them had been turned away. Um, therapy visits uh, were being declined because, you know, people's strength and, you know, mobility may not have been, you know, top priority. You know, they were more worried about, obviously, you know, the more interactions they had, the more potential exposure. So, you know, that had a big impact. Um, and, it, and it had a huge impact on, um, you know, the business aspect of, of home health and on hospice where, you know, in home health in particular, um, you know, you're paid by the visit. Um, and when people are canceling visits, um, obviously, you know, the employee's not working, um, you know, that you're not getting reimbursed for those missed visits. Uh, there's also a, a, a lupa adjustment. Um, and I don't get want to get it too deep into it. But, you know, basically, if you don't do a certain number of visits on certain types of patients, um, your reimbursement changes dramatically. So we absolutely were, were faced with all of those challenges. Um, in addition to having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars above and beyond, you know, what we would typically buy from a supply standpoint. And I think, you know, every healthcare provider has been impacted by that. You know, when I, when I think about it, you know, as we looked at what we had, you know, the day before we decided that we needed different type of PPE, you know, outside of a handful of gowns, um, obviously you always have gloves and you, know, you have a handful of goggles. Um, but when you start thinking about, you know, hair bonnets and, um, you know, massive amounts of gowns and, you know, we actually have gotten respirators for all of our clinicians, um, full-fledged respirators, which we felt like was a, a big step for all of them and feeling safe. Um, we didn't have any of those things. So, uh, um, I think our initial spend was um, over $100,000 above our normal supply spend 
uh, for home health and hospice in the first you know couple of weeks, just securing equipment. So, you know, when you put all those things together um, and you're trying to do the right thing by taking you know, COVID patients, um, obviously it puts a massive strain on post-acute care providers who are trying to really be a resource. And, um, you know, I think what the hospitals were asking us is, you know, they needed us to take these patients as one of the larger providers in Southern California to free up beds. And, um, you know, we wanted to do our part, but it absolutely was, was challenging. Um, I will say that the federal government um, stepped in quickly. Um, you know, I, I know that obviously there's always acts of Congress that we talk about um, to get things pushed through, um, but but really the government came through with you know a lot of different programs that could help um, all different types of providers, specifically providers who were taking care of you know Medicare eligible seniors. Um, so the CARES Act definitely did some things to help offset you know a lot of the losses that we saw in volume or the the expenses that we had related to COVID the overtime, the, you know, there's so many places where literally almost every expense, you know, went up due to COVID, um, due to whatever reason. And you could have a conversation about each one. So um, I was really pleased at how the country came together, in all honesty. I think uh, it was really neat to see how people were supporting each other. We saw, you know, various healthcare providers, you know, trying to help each other with equipment, uh, trying to refer patients to, you know, agencies that could provide the right support. Um, it really was, you know, people banding together, um, trying to do the greater good for the patient and in obviously fighting um, the virus. So, you know, we feel very fortunate that we were a part of it and are a part of it. Um, at the same time, feel very thankful that, you know, there was some government aid that could come in so that we could continue to keep doing it. And we really believe that this will be something that carries on for quite some time. Um, you know, I know is, you know, some of the Things are changing in various counties and, you know, some of the, the stay-at-home orders are starting to loosen. Um, we're actually taking just as many, if not more, COVID patients today as we were 45 days ago. Um, and we believe that, you know, with folks being out and about more and obviously, you know, being around other individuals, you know, that that will have some type of impact where, you know, we will see more of these patients being exposed and potentially more of these patients, you know, needing post-acute care services. So. Um, you know, we're here and we're ready to, you know, continue to help in any way that we can. The other thing that the government did that I think was really helpful was, um, in particular, on the home health side, um, they removed the uh, skilled need. Um, so one of the qualifying factors for seniors is that they have to be, you know, I'm sorry, not the skilled need, the homebound um, status. So home, patients have to be homebound um, in order to receive home health services. And, um, you know, they removed that so that seniors could access care in their home as opposed to, you know, doctor's offices or outpatient therapy centers. You know, I think the, the national associations did a really nice job of advocating um, for finding different ways to care for seniors in their home. Um, obviously, that will change once, you know, COVID kind of goes away. Um, but it's allowed us to probably take care of more patients who, you know, wouldn't have normally have qualified for, for services. Um, on the telehealth side, um, I think there's a couple of things that, you know, telehealth has, you know, has been kind of getting hot for a while in the post-acute care space and really in the physician practice world. Um, we have been doing more of it, um, in particular on the hospice side. Um, we do a lot of it on the home health side, uh, but as of today, um, there isn't, it isn't a reimbursed visit. Um, so there's still legislation that's being pushed to see if home health will get included 
um, in the telehealth reimbursement plan. So when we do those visits, you know, via telephone, um, you know, whether they're a FaceTime or whether they're just telephonic interactions, um, you know, those are just done in addition to the care that we're providing in the home. So, you know, we're, we're preparing that, you know, the industry will probably move towards that. Um, but I still think it's a challenge for our industry where, you know, a lot of what we do is touching patients, um, you know, that can't be replaced with telehealth like a doctor's visit can, right? In a doctor's visit, a lot of their assessment is just a visual assessment, um, you know, but they're not necessarily providing treatment. Uh, when you're providing treatment, it's really tough to provide treatment through the phone. Um, so we'll have to have a blend if that does happen. Um, but I think anything that we can do that helps patients get, you know, more care or care in a delivery fashion that doesn't expose them as much, um, you know, is something that's probably going to change for all of us, you know, whether you're healthy or whether you're not, um, as we move forward in, in the new era. That is some great info. Um... Paul, especially with the telehealth, I think I might have been one of the ones who was misinformed as well as I thought you guys were starting to receive actual reimbursement for it. So appreciate that clarification. Um, I I had that misconception of home health. What are some other misconceptions that you see? Uh, keeping in mind, our audience is mostly healthcare professionals, so not necessarily what are misconceptions of the general public, but what are misconceptions of hospitals and physicians of what you guys can do? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's changed in home health, I'll start there, um, has been, you know, 10, 15 years ago, what you could do in the home versus what you're doing in the home today has changed dramatically. And on a regular basis, I think uh, physicians and uh, healthcare professionals are amazed at what we can actually manage in the, um, in the home environment. Um, you know, so things like, you know, deep wound cares and debridements and infusion, um, you know, that, that really wouldn't have been done in the home 10, 15 years ago by a lot of home health providers. And today those are things that we're doing, you know, with quite regularity. And the skill set of our clinicians is quite different than it was 10, 15 years ago. And that really has been, you know, due to the demand of our referral partners where, you know, I think everybody, you know, through, um, you know, some of the, the CMS changes around how long somebody maybe stays in a hospital or in a nursing home or what levels of service they may receive in between, um, you know, more people are getting shorter lengths of stay in every care setting, which usually means that these patients are going home sicker than they were in the past. And I think that home health has really evolved in taking care of that acuity level that in many cases folks are, you know, not always aware that um, home health can actually take care of. You know, on the hospice side, you know, hospice knowledge has really just grown um, tremendously. I, I think still to this day, you know, one of the misnomers both from healthcare professionals as well as you know, the community is, you know, that all services kind of stop. Um, and the reality is, is that, you know, under hospice, there's probably not a setting of healthcare where you will actually get more care than you probably have in any other environment that you've maybe experienced, um, you know, from, from top to bottom. Um, and I think that that's still something that people don't understand because most hospice care is really provided in the home. So folks don't get a chance to really see it. Um, you know, when you, Think about what a social worker can do when they're willing to sit with a family and work, you know, for four to six hours on, um, you know, what the plans are once their loved one passes or to work through, you know, massive family dynamics to ensure that, you know, everybody feels at peace as their loved one, um, you know, moves on. Um, I think those are the things that people don't see and they don't think of, you know, a lot of it's really just dealing with 
the individual and maybe the pain management or the symptom management, you know, that their disease process may be presenting. Um, but there's so much more on the ancillary side that, you know, hospice can deal with that, um, you know, folks just don't get a chance to see it. So, you know, it's our job to make sure that we tell the story so that, you know, folks truly understand, you know, what, what their patients can actually access. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, there's, I think one thing people forget as well with, uh, with hospice is it's not around the clock care necessarily, right? There's continuous care with symptoms that need to be under control. But um, it's a lot of care, but it's intermittent. So um, one thing that I've you know, had to learn over my healthcare profession, I was fortunate my brother-in-law actually had inpatient hospice care in the San Gabriel Valley, um, but we know that's very, very rare. Uh, is there anything in Southern, any other inpatient facilities besides Citrus Valley in Southern California that you're aware of? You know, there's a handful of them. Um, you know, one of the challenges is in California, it's really more of a licensing issue. Um, you know, there isn't a hospice license certification. So you kind of have to, you know, license them a little bit uniquely. So there's some hospice houses. Um, you know, there used to be San Diego Hospice down here in San Diego that had a inpatient unit, but they ran that much like a hospital. So, you know, for most of the inpatient um, in California, it's either provided in a nursing home um, or it's provided in a hospital setting. And that's really for the, the patients who are, you know, massively acute and dealing with, you know, things that are just very, very difficult to deal with, you know, in the home environment for the family. Um, and you mentioned, um, you know, about hospice not being 24 hours um, a day. And, and you're right, that absolutely is a misconception. You know, I think the other piece that people don't realize is that, you know, as when you're on hospice and there's an issue at three o'clock in the morning, you know, there's staff who are actually working those hours to go see those patients and deal with whatever, you know, issue may be coming up. Um, but, but it truly is, you know, a collaboration of providing care for those patients. I mean, um, you know, I know with 24-hour home care, we've had the opportunity um, as early as this past week um, to work on, you know, cases where people needed that 24-hour care around the clock where, you know, home health or hospice was coming in, um, but they needed really the minute-by-minute the -minute care because there wasn't the right caregiver set up. And um, you've got to really partner with all of your community partners. And it's about really care planning beyond just your own company. It's about care planning with all of the various services, you know, whether it's nutritional services, whether it's private duty services, whether it's, um, you know, any other kind of thing that the patient or family may need. Um, that's usually when patients have some of the best experiences is when there's that collaboration and that trust. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. So as we wrap up the show, um, I want to talk about the current momentum in hospice and home health um, from a regulatory and maybe even reimbursement perspective. So there's something out there that I think all of our listeners likely have heard of, but may not really know what that is. And that's PDGM. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us how that has impacted you guys, but also how does it impact patients? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, for the last year, um, most home health companies were preparing for PDGM as being, you know, the single biggest challenge that they were going to be faced with come January 1st. Um, it's interesting because obviously COVID, you know, coming in in, you know, the middle of March um, made almost PDGM go away for all intents and purposes, right? At least the thought process and the plans around it. Um, you know, it really was one of the biggest reimbursement changes for home health since the, the late 90s. Um, so it's quite significant. Um, and, uh, you know, it was really kind of changing with the times and the needs. Um, you know, in previous home health reimbursement, um, it was very difficult to take care of, 
you know, chronic long-term care patients. Um, and there was a heavy emphasis more on, you know, therapy and therapeutic services. Uh, I think with PDGM, you know, there was a big uh, focus around trying to take care of higher acuity um, and making sure that there was the right reimbursement attached to taking care of COPD and CHF and, you know, non-healing wound patients, patients who we know are going to, you know, probably really need a lot of health care, whether it's home health or other services, um, and they're, you know, going to continuously be chronic. Um, there wasn't always the way to actually get paid for the care that you would provide to those types of patients. So I think, you know, PDGM did some really good things around that piece, um, but it really changed the way that, you know, companies were looking at how they were taking care of patients and, um, you know, what kind of programs you had in place. And, um, you know, all different types of changes around where patients came from, affected reimbursement, whether they come out of hospitals or nursing homes. Those are institutional referrals that are, you know, being weighted a little bit heavier versus kind of a community referral. Um, and I think that that's really the government kind of saying, hey, we know these patients are going to be sicker. We know they're going to need more care. Um, and, and obviously that's broad brushed. Um, but I think in general, we do tend to see higher acuity levels. Um, so that's really been a significant change in, um, in reimbursement. I think a lot of companies um, uh, have been impacted negatively by PDGM where, you know, their revenues were, were dropping significantly. I think, you know, across the board, you know, almost every home health provider has seen a drop in revenue. Um, there's also been some changes to some of the admitting diagnoses. Um, they've become a little bit uh, tighter. Um, so some patients who may have qualified in the past may not qualify um, in the PDGM world. So um, a handful of changes that, that we've been, you know, kind of addressing for six months leading up um, and then kind of got away from it. But uh, the good news is today, I think, you know, folks are getting back to those conversations of how to take care of those types of patients. I think the biggest challenge for a home health provider is as you're taking on higher acuity, you know, the skill sets of your clinicians has to change. Um, you know, not every clinician understands how to take care of some of these acuity levels. Um, in fact, as I talked about before, you know, what a patient looked like 10 years ago versus what it looks like today, vastly different. Um, but it also makes, we have to make sure that, you know, the, the, the clinical competencies of the clinicians are there so that, you know, one, the patient gets the right care, and two, that we don't ever put an employee in a situation where, you know, they don't feel comfortable doing something that they may be presented um, in the home. So PDGM was was a, a big, big change. Um, you know, I think it was easier probably for the larger companies who had, um, you know, good um, EMR systems, um, who had, you know, kind of resources to really be able to do the deep dive and understanding it and you know, how to modify, you know, whatever needed to be modified. And, um, and I think, you know, many of them, including us, you know, work through those challenges. Um, but, you know, still to this day across the country, home health services are predominantly provided by, you know, mom and pop businesses where you have a nurse leader who owns the business, is providing care, running the financials. And, um, you know, those providers are, you know, going to struggle with trying to deal with those changes and maybe don't have a sophisticated EMR that, you know, can help guide them as to, you know, what's happening with their current patient population and how they may have to, you know, maneuver through it. So, um, you know, we've actually provided some support to some of those smaller agencies um, because we still believe that, you know, home health is, is going to be something that's going to be even more utilized um, moving forward. 
And then on the hospice side, um, you know, we really haven't seen a lot of regulatory changes, um, a lot of reimbursement changes. Obviously, knowledge of hospice has continued to grow. Um, communities have gotten more comfortable with it. Um, you know, people obviously want care in the home. Um, and, you know, we've really seen hospice care really kind of continuing to grow, I think, across the country and um, in Southern California with our company as well. Awesome, Paul. Again, some great, uh, great perspective there. So last question as we wrap up, besides what you've touched on already, do you see any other changes this decade? So, um, or I guess, depending on who you ask, people say the, 20, uh, the decade starts in 2021. But uh, let's just say for the 2020s, um, do you see any other changes with reimbursement or both hospice and home health? You know, the moment I would say no, I'd, I'd be a fool, right? Because if we study history, um, it, it really seems to be, if it's not every year, it's every other year um, where there's some type of change that's happening from either a regulatory environment or from um, a state environment or a local environment. So I think, you know, being nimble and recognizing that nothing's ever going to stay the same is absolutely the mentality to have. Um, you've got to be able to really pivot and change along with the times. Otherwise, you really do become extinct. Um, you know, I, I remember in the late 90s when, um, you know, home health changed its reimbursement strategies. And, you know, there was folks who, who literally did not change their behaviors. And, you know, they became dinosaurs and they became extinct um, because they weren't able to pivot. Um, and you have a lot of folks who kind of live in that, you know, the old days, right? You know, that was the good old days. Um, and what you realize now, and I think, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, healthcare providers have seen so much change that um, they're expecting it and uh, it's easier to digest and it's, there's not as much resistant. Um, and that's both from administration as well as from field level clinicians. So I think our job is easier in that regard, um, but you also have to make sure that you're really paying attention to what's happening and what's going on and making sure that you position your organization so that it can continue to evolve. You know, my personal opinion is, um, and I think that COVID has pushed this even faster than what um, I would have thought, you know, normally is more people are going to receive more care in the home. Um, and, and that's just the reality of a post COVID world. Um, we knew that that was where all the trends were already telling us, um, right, for private duty and home health and hospice and really all in home services was that more people were accessing more care and more services in the home environment. Um, I think a post-COVID world really kind of amplifies that. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of folks who are going to be fearful of going to outpatient clinics um, or going even to doctor's offices, um, you know, exposure in nursing homes, exposure in hospitals or ERs, uh, where people would have traditionally have gotten care. I think today, they're going to try to find ulterior motives, and whether that's through telehealth or whether it's through bringing care providers into their home where they feel a little bit more protected and less exposed. Um, I really see that being probably the single biggest change for anybody who's providing care in the home setting. Awesome, Paul. Thanks for that perspective. And I think most of us, uh, all the listeners will probably tend to agree with you. So I just want to thank you again for taking the time to be our guest today, Paul. Uh, how can folks learn more about Mission Healthcare? You know, um, probably our website is, is the best, uh, missionhealthcarehh.com. Um, it gives you a lot of information about what the services are, what our locations are. Um, there's also a lot of just great articles on there. Um, there's also a lot of great folks who are willing to just actually talk. We have a, a centralized intake team for home health and hospice. 
um, that's willing to talk to anybody who has questions about what kind of care they may be eligible for. Um, and if it's not us, um, we obviously have lots of great community partners, um, people like 24 hour home care who, you know, we refer cases to when, you know, maybe there isn't a skilled need, but there's a need for, um, in-home support. So, uh, folks can absolutely reach out to us and connect with us that way. And we'll make sure that if it's not our services, um, that will help you get connected with whatever you may need. Awesome. It's been great having you too, Zach. Uh, we don't do as many shows together anymore. So thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you both so much. It was a great show today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the time. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.